The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the following episodes, we intend to ask and answer various classic questions about death, hell, and the afterlife. We also will take a look at the proper answers to these based upon what God's Word, the Bible, says and comparing that to the typical answers and perspectives given by man from his philosophic worldview. Our goal is to provide correct definitions and a biblical worldview framework from which we can see more clearly what the arguments are, as well as where truth and reality lies. More importantly, our goal is to allow God's truth and reality to provide tangible hope and joy for our eternal future for those who would by His grace be called to do so. Father, I pray that as we open this topic and the episodes to follow, that your Spirit would soften our hearts, open our minds, 
and help us to receive the revelation of your word, which divides truth and error, life and death. Let us be convicted and remind us of the unavoidable reality that it is appointed for every man once to die and then to be judged to all eternity. May we be stirred up then and pray that we be found in Christ and be judged according to his finished work and to have his righteousness imputed to our account. Give us your spirit of discernment now to receive your word regarding the truth of the things of life, death, heaven, and hell, which you alone hold the keys of victory. In Jesus' name, amen. In every culture, in every time, everywhere, man has always had some reminder that death is the universal fate of every human on earth. Every culture and civilization has some right, ceremony, or event which deals with the reality of death. Some are profound ceremonies or rituals. Others are cursory and brief. Almost every person has some explanation, belief, or opinion as to what happens when people die. Probably billions of people live their lives in some measure, at least in part, based upon their expectation of what happens at death. As a result, whether we want to consciously think about it today or not, Death and its consequences are an inevitable factor as to how each person lives daily. With this being said, our goal is to draw a distinction between what man believes or imagines about death and a discerned understanding of what God's Word, the Bible, reveals about the reality of death and hell. Since death, hell, eternity, the grave, and or the afterlife are manifestly topics related to the future of man, it becomes necessary to address the reality of the present status and nature of man's existence as a prelude. As with the future state, the present status and nature of man, likewise, ultimately breaks down to what mankind thinks, believes, and imagines regarding himself versus what God's Word, the Bible, reveals. Now, before we proceed, it might be prudent to be honest with ourselves about God's Word, the Bible, and the limitations of man. It must be remembered that the Bible is not a medical dictionary, nor is it an exhaustive thesis and description of the esoteric, metaphysical nature of man and exactly precisely where man goes in time and space at every point along the spectrum of existence. We're being unrealistic if we expect to walk away with a cosmological flowchart depicting and describing in detail what eternity looks like and providing geographical locations akin to a travel brochure. Instead, 
We should realize that Scripture is limited to those revelations God deems necessary and sufficient for man to understand the basic doctrines of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It contains the information needed which stands to convict those in rebellion so that they are without excuse, and it contains the depth necessary to progressively sanctify those for whom God is pleased to draw by his word to justification. Hence, at the outset, we should be realistic in our expectations regarding our search for the explanations of death and hell, as well as the other aspects of the spiritual realm. We should anticipate finding a framework and a foundation which fits into the whole and can be supported within the entire context of God's blueprint in Scripture and which makes sense from a correct biblical worldview. At the same time, we should guard against becoming too dogmatic and hanging our preconceptions and or our biases like wallpaper within the framework of God's plan and pretending that they are part of God's blueprint. In the end, we must humbly accept and discern between those exegetical doctrines of Scripture which are fundamentally essential and which cannot be compromised, and those doctrines and or beliefs which are non-essential to having fellowship and or a relationship with God. In short, we want to earnestly endeavor to correctly divide between opinion and thus saith the word of God. With this summary thesis, let's dive into the specifics of our first topic. The first question for mankind is, what is the truth and reality about man's nature and existence? Well, by summary, according to Mr. Ash, i.e. the atheist, the skeptic, and the humanist, each would likely defer to evolution for the explanation of man's existence. Accordingly, you and I and every man are nothing more than a random accident of deep time and mindless, meaningless process. Man has no soul, no spirit, no essence of personal being. We are all a hodgepodge of various chemicals interacting with one another on nothing more than the hamster wheel of time. We are born, we live, we self-assign whatever meaning and significance to our lives which seems good in our own eyes. And then, at some point, we fall off the wheel, die, and are consumed by worms. Game over. Our imagined thoughts and feelings of love, hate, joy, inspiration, and all that we dream are nothing more than chemical interactions in our brain which have no basis in reality other than that which we interpret those reactions to be based upon each person's subjective opinion. Meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality are all a matter of personal consensus, opinion, culture, mood, percentage, and environment measured from generation to generation, 
person to person, day to day, and are judged solely by the dictates of what every person sees as being right in their own imagination wheelhouse. Hence, Mr. Ash's world and life view end up with every person self-assigning whatever truth and reality that feels good regarding their own nature and existence. At best, Mr. Ash is accidentally in existence. They are born to whatever circumstances that the roulette wheel of life has bequeathed to them. Mr. Ash uses whatever ruler, bent, straight, or absent altogether to measure the success or lack thereof of his existence. Mr. Ash then examines his ruler and then convinces himself that he is a success since marginally he believes or perceives that those around him measure up to whatever degree less than himself on the same ruler. As Mr. Ash approaches death, Mr. Ash is comfortable with the end result that he and everyone else will simply die. We will be eaten by worms as our body decompose, and we will cease to exist whatsoever for all time. Since Mr. Ash is a materialist, Mr. Ash denies the soul, the spirit, God, heaven, hell, and afterlife because these are all non-material issues which cannot by definition exist. Mr. Ash only believes in those things which can be examined by the five senses. Mr. Ash refuses to acknowledge that materialism is a philosophical worldview assumption which itself is non-material and thus cannot be proven by its own standards. In some cases, Mr. Ash consciously or unconsciously makes the intellectual choice to hold to this position and to deny the reality of the eternal existence of man's soul or spirit, because if they did so, they would then have to contend with the consequences of how they live now, what choices they make, and what impact those choices carry for them in eternity. Therefore, hiding from or denying man's eternal nature and existence provides a false sense of security and comfort against having to face an ultimate authority apart from themselves. This then leads to an inevitable tension and polarization against anything and anyone who would deign to remind Mr. Ash of a worldview other than his own. The result is that Mr. Ash must logically unite himself with his like-minded fellows to use whatever means necessary to silence or eliminate those whose ideas run counter to their own. Consequently, God is denied. The Bible is mocked and dismissed. Christians and Christianity are attacked, and all of faith and religion are up to be legislated and or lobbied into obscurity, if not outright non-existence. Next, 
By summary, if we compare this to a biblical world and life view, as we survey the totality of Scripture in context, we learn that in context, mankind is unique, a special being created to reflect in many areas the image of God. Mankind is not accidental or random. Each human has a purpose according to God's sovereign will. God's purpose according to His perfect will is for mankind to have fellowship with God. Because of the fall, all mankind is beset by His nature of sin and rebellion. Every human has fallen short of God's perfection, and there is no one who is good enough to measure up to God's approval. God must choose and draw whom he pleases to repentance and to acceptance, trust, and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Mankind's ultimate purpose is to give primary honor, glory, worship, devotion, and obedience to God the Creator. The believer's mandate is to diligently seek out God's gifts and talents with which they may accomplish God's will for them. Every human is likewise designed for fellowship with those along the same path to encourage, support, and help as the need and ability presents itself. Our duty and privilege is to worship God and to exercise faith in the midst of adversity which sin, Satan, the world, and the flesh present. The believer is endowed with a new nature and power with which to daily crucify the flesh and to victoriously be progressively sanctified into the ultimate image of Christ. We are adjured to diligently seek out and to study God's word to know his revealed will. We are commanded to speak the truth and love to others, to teach, to adjure, to admonish, to rebuke, and to stir up others to the good news of the gospel as well as being salt and light to a dying world. We are to redeem the time we have and to live as pilgrims in a foreign land looking forward to the promise and reality of our home to come. Man's resistance or unwillingness to teach and proclaim God as the ultimate source of authority for meaning, morals, truth, reality, significance, and beauty, and to instead insist that man is nothing more than a random accident of time and chance, is not simply a mere academic exercise. The questions and answers regarding these two world and life view paradigms presents a polarized economy with with enormous ramifications now and eternal consequences in the grand scheme of things. In the real world, where the rubber meets the road, our understanding of eternity guides and shapes tangible aspects of how and why we live our lives today. We could look at any number of examples. Take just for example today's educational environment. 
the fact that in large part we have excommunicated God out of our schools and replaced him with evolution would likely explain why there are those who exist who are able to increasingly rationalize shooting or otherwise indiscriminately killing other human beings in schools and elsewhere. We should not find surprise that since we have routinely openly taught children that they are nothing more than animals or random accidental chemical combinations without meaning or purpose who are bound to die and cease to exist, that some people would logically simply seek to expedite the process since there are no ultimate consequences. In fact, absent an absolute moral law and an absolute moral law giver, they would consequently defer to the evolutionary process and would simply see the indiscriminate taking of life as the very definition of of survival of the fittest, which is in keeping with the evolutionary theory. If, as materialism and evolution posits, people don't have a soul or a spirit, then, as a result, they can coldly rationalize underneath this umbrella that they are not killing. They are simply repurposing chemical combination masses for the machine of philosophic materialism and evolutionary process. Alternately, if they are killing, they reason that it is no more significance than killing any other animal, since man has no more significance than the average dog. There is no meaning or morality either way, only cause and effect and self-gratification for the moment. This is likely also why many can rationalize abortion at any stage, even after birth, as well as euthanasia for the, quote, sick, the infirm, the elderly, and anyone else who is inconvenient, unquote. However, we would contrast this to a world where both at home and in the educational environment, all children are taught that every human Every child was and is a special and unique creation of God who has significance and dignity. Our lives are not our own. They are the property of God designed for the purpose of glorifying Him in all that we say and do. We are stewards of our lives as well as the lives which God gives our fellow man. We are responsible to redeem the time, the resources, and the gifts which God has given us. God sees and knows the thoughts and intents of our hearts, and we will each be held responsible for the management of what He has given us in eternity. God is a merciful, kind, and loving God. God is also a God of justice, righteousness, and holiness. God will judge the living and the dead. Those who are truly found to be in Jesus Christ by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work will receive eternal life. Those who reject Christ and rebel against Christ and his word 
will receive just eternal punishment. God's perfect will for his creation, man, is fellowship, love, peace, joy, and eternal life. Death, sickness, evil, and suffering are all unnatural intrusions on creation and mankind due to the fall as a result of mankind's choice to rebel. So, thus far, when we ask the question, what is the truth and reality about man's nature and existence, we are ultimately destined to summarize the question in two divergent ways. One, according to God's revelation, man is created by God in God's image, and God declared that creation to be very good. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 31. Therefore, man is a special creation with infinite, individual, intrinsic worth and value to God. According to man, man is an accident of random, mindless chance evolution. Therefore, Man's significance and value is limited to his own self-worth as well as the consensus and culture of his neighboring fellow man. 2. According to God's revelation, man was designed and created for fellowship with God. Genesis chapter 3, 8, Exodus 25, 8, Isaiah 43, 7, and 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Thus, man has a purpose and a destiny. According to man, there is no ultimate purpose or destiny other than that which we each assign to ourselves as we each see right in our own eyes. 3. According to God's revelation, Man is beset with his own nature of sin and rebellion due to the fall as a result of man's rebellion against God, and there is no one who can by their own works, efforts, or merits earn God's favor or acceptance. Genesis chapter 3, 7, chapter 3, verse 24, Genesis 6, 11, Ecclesiastes 7.20, Romans 3.10, and 3.23, etc. According to man, man is constantly evolving and getting better as enlightenment, education, science, technology, and information increases. 4. According to God's revelation, the penalty for sin i.e. falling short of God's glory and righteousness, is death. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, Genesis 3, 3, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, chapter 5, verse 14, verse 15, and 17, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, and James 1, 15. Death is also an unnatural intrusion and departure from God's plan due to man's rebellion. Eventually, however, God will put an end to death. According to man, death is a natural event in the scheme of evolution which may be delayed, but will always be part of the cycle of man's existence. 5. 
According to God's revelation, man is a soul, a spirit which is eternal. Psalms 23, verse 6, Ecclesiastes 12, 7, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, Matthew 25, verse 46, and Romans 6, 23. According to man, man has no soul, no spirit, nothing which is eternal. Man is a chemical biological machine whose only differentiation from an animal is that man is self-aware with the ability to create, imagine, and philosophize. Man is finite, and only man's legacy for good or bad can be said to be ostensibly eternal to the extent that other people who continue to live, remember, or are affected by it. So, at this point, thus far, in asking the question, what is the truth and reality about man's nature and existence, we have only discussed the divergent viewpoints between a biblical world and life view and the humanistic and or atheistic world and life view. However, in order to be completely forthcoming, there are several other viewpoints from camps which might well be labeled as cultic, heretical, or minimally unscriptural. The reason we would consider these viewpoints as heretical is because they use portions of the Bible out of context to the whole in order to establish their theology. Because they use scripture and call themselves quote-unquote Christian, in some cases we should be familiar with the terms and arguments in order to move forward. For example, when Seventh-day Adventists or Jehovah's Witness answer the question, what is the truth and reality about man's nature and existence, they often apply a doctrine known as conditional immortality. Conditional immortality is a theory wherein the soul of man ceases to exist after the physical death of the body. Thus, when the physical death of man occurs, the soul of every man becomes non-existent. Jehovah's Witnesses refer to this as, quote, soul annihilation, unquote. Accordingly, both believers and non-believers alike have their souls annihilated at death, and only those who are redeemed will have their souls recreated by God at the second coming of Jesus. This same doctrine is also often euphemistically entitled soul sleep. Under this terminology, when any man dies, their soul quote-unquote sleeps in the sense that although every soul is annihilated, the memory of that soul with all of its individual characteristics and essence remains inert in the memory of God. Under this premise, for those who are redeemed, when Jesus returns again, God recreates or awakens those sleeping souls and reconstitutes them into an eternal and incorruptible version this clearly flies in the face of many verses, including 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, which says, quote, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord, unquote. 
So here, according to Paul, it is manifestly obvious that one cannot be present with the Lord if one has been annihilated. Also, Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, quote, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better." Here again, if Paul wanted to agree with soul sleep, then he should not have misled us by saying that he could depart, i.e. die, to be with Christ. Instead, Paul should have told us that he had a desire to die and then to eventually be recreated from annihilation so that at long last he could be with Christ sometime in the future. However, if such an idea was correct, it is confusing at best to attempt to understand how being annihilated and continuing only as an inert memory in the mind of God for some indeterminate amount of time, could provide a preference and comfort for Paul as opposed to living and providing fruit to Christ. Or again, how about Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, wherein Jesus is transfigured and talks to Moses and Elijah, all three of which are seen by the disciples. Since at least Moses was dead, we must assume that his soul was, according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, annihilated and only exists as an inert memory in the mind of God. We would further have to assume that since the disciples saw Moses, that God had to recreate Moses from his memory, talk to him, and then annihilate him back again to a memory after the conversation is over. Further, just to complicate things, if Moses is one of the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 12, then it would appear that Moses will have to endure being recreated from God's memory a second time only to be killed by the beast, i.e. the Antichrist, and be raised three and a half days later. This means that Moses will be annihilated for a third time, become a memory, only to be recreated a fourth time. After this, we are told in verse 12 of Revelation that the two witnesses are told to, quote, come up here, unquote, to heaven. At this point, it is unclear what would happen to Moses under the soul sleep doctrine. If all souls must, quote-unquote, sleep without exception until the second coming, then Moses would have to be annihilated a fourth time, become an inert memory in God's mind, and then be recreated a fifth time to finally inherit eternal life. If, in fact, Moses does not get annihilated, then we would have to consider the possibility that annihilation and or soul sleep is not a universal rule for man. 
This would then force us to re-examine under what circumstances God would exempt some and not others. Continuing to look at Scripture regarding the theory of soul sleep or conditional immortality and or annihilation, we would have a serious problem regarding the discourse of Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31. Here, Jesus, who most would recognize as God, relates a story about Lazarus and the rich man. Now, granted, the story is a parable, and thus we must grant the disclaimer that this or any other parable is not one which is necessarily traceable to two specific historical personages synonymous with these. However, this being said, the foundational truth provided by the vehicle of the parable is not disturbed or dismissed in the least. In other words, if there were no truth in reality provided by Jesus' parables, then there would be absolutely no point for Jesus in providing the parables he gave when the reason he gave them was to communicate truth and reality to the hearer. In this case, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus relates the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, both of whom have died physically. In each case, they relate their respective conscious conditions to one another after their death. It should also be mentioned that since it is Jesus relating this conversation, and condition during his lifetime that this situation is one which existed before his second coming. Consequently, the question arises, if Lazarus and the rich man are both dead, then according to the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have been annihilated and exist only as a memory in the mind of God. Thus the question is, how can memories which are inert have a consciousness of their present condition. How do inner memories communicate with one another? Either we must assume that there is consciousness of the soul after death, or Jesus is somehow visiting these inert memories in his own mind and imposing his own improvised, imagined characterizations to them like a puppeteer to a puppet. Finally, likewise, we have issues concerning soul sleep and or annihilation when we consider the incident of the thief on the cross related to us in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. As you will recall, the thief who is being crucified along Jesus and proclaims faith in Jesus by requesting that Jesus, quote, remember me when you come into your kingdom, unquote. Jesus then responds by saying, quote, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, unquote. In this case, we don't need to get caught up arguing about what or where, quote unquote, paradise is. Instead, we need to remember that soul sleep and or annihilation as taught by both the Seventh-day Adventist and the Watchtower require that upon death, the person's soul becomes an inert memory in the mind of God until such time as those who are redeemed are 
recreated at the time of Jesus' second coming. This is a problem because if that is the case, Jesus lied big time to the thief by telling him that the thief would be with him, quote unquote, today. Instead, the best that Jesus could do to be honest in keeping with soul sleep would be to tell the thief something like, hey, take heart, you'll be dead today and you'll be an inner memory in my mind without any self-awareness for a really long time to come, but eventually, after several thousand years, I will recreate you and you can start your eternal life, unquote. To complicate matters, Jesus himself could be considered dead for three days and three nights. So, if Jesus is annihilated as soul sleep requires and is just an inert memory, then how can the thief, who is one inert memory, have the experience of consciously being in the presence of Jesus, who is himself an inert memory? In order for the thief to have immediate hope in the face of excruciating pain and imminent death, in order for today to be today, the thief has to have a soul which is conscious and eternal after death of the physical body. No other alternative provides clarity and sense to this passage and others. For the time being, this concludes this episode. Please join me for part two. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.